Our scripture for today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting in the second verse. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word today. Amen. Well, a few years ago during Labor Day weekend, there was a reporter from Vice Online named Aaron Gordon who was uh, procrastinating on a deadline and he was walking around Central Park, as he often did, looking at the memorial plaques on the benches. He was playing a game that uh, he describes as person or dog. And so as he looked at the memorial benches, he would read, uh, read the inscription and try to determine if it was dedicated to a dog or a person. Like, here's Joe. He likes to sit and is a good boy. You would hope dog, right? That's not an actual plaque. Um, so as he was walking through the park looking at the plaques, he came across a plaque that was unlike any other. The plaque says, very simply, Stephen R. Not dead, he just likes plaques. So he took a picture of it and fully intended to research this plaque and then forgot about it for a while. And as he continued to procrastinate his writing deadline, he was scrolling through pictures on his phone and he found it and he tweeted about it. This was before it was X, I think, so it was still actually a tweet. Um, and he found Stephen R. on Twitter. He sparked up a conversation online, asked for an interview, and he met Stephen R. So they were talking and they shared their fascination with the plaques. Who knew that there would be more than one person who is fascinated by plaques? Uh, but Stephen said that he, he liked the plaques because they seemed egalitarian. Some were wedding proposals, some were memorials, some were naturalists who just loved the park. And Stephen said, you know what, I'm going to research how to get a plaque. And so he researched and he found out that the New York City Parks Department through the Central Park Conservancy charges $10,000 per plaque. So much for egalitarian, right? Is it clearly reserved for a level of people who have means to get a plaque. So this, this man, Stephen, who's a producer and a part-time comedian, wondered to himself if he could just make a plaque and just slap it on a bench. Turns out you can. And so he, he Googled engraving companies near Central Park 
and the first hit on Google is the actual company that engraves the plaques for Central Park. Now, lest you think that this company was uh, an accomplice to some sort of petty crime, they weren't because Stephen R. told them that he was a producer for a movie and that it was a film prop. So he said he needed it to be accurate even down to the tack nails he used to put it into the bench. And he was quoted $150 for the plaque. $150 is just $10,000. His idea for this plaque originated from a message that he once said to a, sent to a friend that simply said, if I die, make a plaque and put it on a bench in Central Park that just said he loved plaques. But he also drew inspiration from Joe Reginella's memorials to events that never happened, like the great Brooklyn Bridge elephant stampede. You're not awake yet, that's supposed to be funny. It didn't happen. There's also uh, a tale of the 1963 Staten Island ferry disaster when the ferry was attacked and sunk by a giant octopus. And then there's the story of when Mayor Ed Koch released wolves in an anti-graffiti initiative. Can you imagine trying to tag a bridge with a wolf chasing you? You wouldn't do it. This man, though, Stephen Rubino, thought these memorials to non-existent disasters were at the same time funny and poignant because it made you think more carefully about what is honored in public and why. I've always thought of this when I see plaques on stained glass windows or highway signs or any other dedication we etch. Once when I was on a run, I saw a trash can that had a memorial plaque on it truly a trash can. It was dedicated to somebody who spent hours in retirement walking the path and picking up litter. I thought it was quite lovely. Peter, how many, how many trees have plaques? Just at, you were Arboretum, there are like between 3,000 and 4,000 plaques. Plaques are everywhere. I wonder what it is within our spirits that wants to make permanent a person or a place or an experience. So as we turn our sights towards Lent, I'm going to invite you to get really personal with the, the disciple Peter as we prepare to spend, spend all of Lent guided by his faithfulness and, for what I love about him, his most excellent displays of full humanity. And today's gospel lesson is no exception. As we hear this story of transfiguration, we hear about Peter and others going up the mountain with Jesus and they see him transfigured and somebody after the first service said, how do you think they knew it was Moses and Elijah with Jesus? And I thought that's a really great question because there wasn't like Facebook or a newspaper. It's not like Jesus said, hey Pete, I want to introduce you to my friends Mo and Eli here. No, they just know that it's the greats. And is it any wonder that Peter didn't know what to do? He just wants to build a dwelling to mark the occasion. Not one dwelling, but three. He wanted to make permanent the occasion. It's almost like he said, let's put a plaque right here so we always remember it. And I think it's so fascinating that the one thing that Peter manages to articulate, it is good to be here. Though the day in which we observe Epiphany Sunday is a few weeks ago, is this not an epiphany of sorts? Standing in the glory of Jesus, Peter finally ekes something out. 
uh, yeah, it's cool that we're all here, so let's do something, let's, let's build some dwellings, right? It seems like the most rational, logical thing to do on a mountaintop. Now, in our Christian liturgical cycle, or the way that we order the scriptures to guide us spiritually through our seasons of worship, this Sunday, this Transfiguration Sunday, is meant to serve as the delineation between the season of Epiphany and the season of Lent. I used to endlessly annoy my running friends whenever we were on long runs together, because whatever mileage we had in front of us at the day, at the halfway point, I would just start singing whoa, we're halfway there. Garrett didn't find it as funny this year on Graham's birthday. She turned nine that I sang that too. <laughs> There's my parents. You're there. <laughs> you appreciate that. Garrett didn't think it was so funny at 6.45 in the morning. <laughs> but this is the halfway point. Transfiguration in our liturgical cycle is the halfway point between the season of Epiphany and Lent. Lent starts the journey to the cross. Our scriptures and our faces get turned and set toward Jerusalem, knowing that what is in store for our Jesus is a lot of anguish and angst and heartbreak. So why this mountaintop moment then? Why is this the halfway point? Why before all that is in store for Jesus as we move towards that horrible Good Friday when Jesus is crucified, do we pause for this glorious moment? Well, simply put, this is when we see it. This is when God's glory in Jesus is on full display. The kingdom, the kingdom, the way that God has ordered this creation is on full display. But the thing is, when it is all visible, it also means it's all vulnerable. And so we can't really fault Peter for wanting to pause and make permanent this holy moment before it gets dangerous again. This moment when Jesus is on full divine display, but before anyone else can get to him. But, and this might be a little bit of a Lenten spoiler, everything will start to fall apart. What does that say to us? What about when we've known, when all that we've known and relied upon starts to fall apart? We scramble to maintain what is good and holy, and though scary, is comfortable. It's almost like we dig our heels in and say, it is good for us to be here. Let's build something. Let's make this permanent. Caroline Lewis powerfully writes, whether these disintegrating edifices are our churches or our denominations or our democracy, our relationships, our community, our country, too often our only options in response appear to be pop-up tents and quick fixes and provincial vision statements and nearsighted adaptations, none of which actually trust in a future that God holds. Now, I hope I don't ruin the practice of preaching and maybe a, a preacher's habit. Uh, as I scoured my preaching files for a nugget nestled within a previous sermon that I could shine up and repurpose for today, I didn't find a single sermon in my archives on transfiguration. So is this because it's a Sunday that I just usually take off? Maybe. 
Or perhaps it is because when faced with this strange and wonderful story, it's easy to rush past. This is a story that we get hung up on the, is it literal or is it figurative? What mountain were they on? How white was the robe? I do like that they mentioned that it is better than any laundry detergent could ever get a robe. It's shining clean. But as I've been thinking about it, I've wondered why if this is when God's glory is on full display in Jesus, why is it then that in so many of our churches, we don't walk around saying, Christ is transfigured. That's when you're supposed to say, Christ is transfigured indeed. (laughs) Oh, it's because we don't say that, right? We say Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Yeah, we don't say Christ is transfigured. I also, there you go, you're with me. Just a little sidebar, I asked Pastor Brian this week if uh, he thought that I could get away with titling this sermon, Jesus is Transfigured. (laughs) I mean, we're a reconciling church, right? (laughs) But I think the reason that we don't stake our reputation, our story of Jesus on the transfiguration, is because glory needs to have with it the promise of persistence. This is why Peter's feeble attempt to make permanent the moment leads us to a swift descent down the mountain. That glory, this story, this truth for us is something that we can live in. God's glory in and through Jesus will persist in the midst of all that hopes to silence the redemption, the grace, and the love of God. So again, we can't fault Peter because we ourselves are at best trying to contain the present, and at our most futile, we're trying to revert to our past. This is not to say that the past is bad, but it's unattainable. It's gone. It's sometimes venerable and deserves places of honor, but it's gone regardless. And as for the present, well, even if we feel lost and hopeless, like things are falling apart around us, in a single moment of glory, we believe that if we know it, we can control it, which is why the present feels so comfortable to us. And then when we feel like we have a grasp on the present, we falsely think that we can then control the future, too. And to quote Dr. Lewis, again, our default decisions are likely dependent then on the assumptions that our lives will willingly bend to our momentary needs and our contextual commitments. So if we want this instance of glory to take its place in our lives and in our hearts, it is sort of simple, actually. We have to face, like Peter, that the reality that God's glory in Jesus is a confusing, confusing intrusion into what we think we know. If we, like Peter, are not then overshadowed by God's claim, we are missing the point. When God says, listen to him, what is the refrain that we will hear again and again throughout Lent? The disciples hear it and they miss it over and over again. Jesus tells us, that the journey will be hard. Jesus tells us what is in store for him. People will miss the point. Governments and religions and people will oppress more than they liberate as Jesus heads towards Jerusalem. And while the mountaintop on which they reside feels amazing, it is meant to remind us of the hill on which Jesus is crucified and how that is the point. 
So let me make a personal stretch, and this is a real question. I want you to answer it. Where else in scripture do you remember a heavenly God voice say, this is my son, the beloved? At his baptism, yeah. God says this at the baptism of Jesus. And in our baptism, we hear the same. This is God saying, this is my beloved. So if this is a thing that Jesus did and God overshadows it and says, this is my beloved, then maybe we can be transfigured too. What would it mean for us if we really lived as though God's claim on us was not past tense? It is present. And while we cannot dwell permanently in this elated state of transfiguration, we can allow it to inform the ways that we endure whatever the future holds. Always read the plaque has become the unofficial slogan of the podcast 99% Invisible. And it's another way of saying that the place you are existed before you and has a life of its own. The transfiguration of Jesus, too, is a reminder that our story of belonging and belovedness existed long before us and had a life of its own, too, in Jesus. But instead of trying to enshrine our faith on a plaque or in a place or in a season, we get to live it out as we come down from the mountain and walk around with it in a broken and hurting and sometimes scary world. And we get to do all of this with Jesus because Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain. Jesus comes down and continues on the journey. And so whatever our journey holds, we know that we walk with Jesus. We walk with Jesus as we are continually being transformed. Amen.